Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, soften hearts today that we might hear your word. Our Heavenly Father, there are bound to be some whose hearts are so hard and cannot hear the truth. And we would ask your Holy Spirit to do that work that you've done in others, to indeed open up such hard hearts to hear the truth about yourself and about themselves, and that your Spirit might bring in us true repentance, a humiliation over our sins, and the mortification of them. And we would pray, Heavenly Father, that this would give way to trust, love, joy, and assurance in Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Would you please open the Bibles up to 1 John chapter 1 again? 1 John chapter 1. Some of you might have to give me a page number. I'm um, aware that not everybody knows their way around their Bible simply. What page is that on? 1,228. 1,228. Please have your Bibles open. Um, it's important to do that because, uh, like a postman this morning, I need to deliver a message. It's not my message. I am just the delivery board. Children would say, no, Dad, you're the delivery old man. Um, but I am the delivery boy this morning. In fact, um, my message was first delivered by the postal service called Apostles. So whose message is it then? If it's not mine and it's not necessarily the Apostles, well, verse 5 gives it away. If we're the postman, whose message is it? Verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him. Who's the him? Well, it's the him of verses 1 to 4, isn't it? Who is from the beginning, the word of life, the eternal life, Jesus Christ, who the apostles were eye, ear and touch witnesses to, and who makes a person's joy complete. This is a message. This is Jesus' message. And we should read verse 5 as priority mail, right? We all get mail. And this one comes through with a big red, I don't know if they do this anymore, but with the big red line on it, you go, well, I better read that one. Well, you better read this one. I have four points today, all brought to you by the letters I and P, just like Sesame Street, okay? In the computer world, I could say that these four points are your internet provider, and following and the following verses provide us with the our IP addresses, which can't be hidden. Of course, if you are not a nerdy computer geek like Adam or myself, let's just say these four points are the information provider exposing all your security details, okay? 
As I begin, it needs to be said that there is no joy or assurance where there is no truth. But there is great joy and assurance in an immovable proposition. In case you're wondering, that's your first IP. Okay, I understand you should have had an outline in your bulletin this morning. Somebody's already taking notes. Great to see. At a 7.30 church, somebody taking notes. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. A miracle has occurred. Thank you for doing that. I'm so encouraged. Um, sorry, I wasn't looking at anyone else. If you're taking notes, hallelujah for you too. Take notes. Keep concentrating. It's important, isn't it, as we come and sit under God's word. But here is the immovable proposition of truth, verse 5. God is light and there is absolutely no darkness in him. A truth that hangs over where you reside and where you find your security. That God is light. There is absolutely no darkness in him. If you are looking for superlatives for God, surely this statement would have to be one of them. Well, we'll get to another one next week where we'll say God is love. And we all love that, don't we? In fact, so many people who don't even bother to come to church and aren't even interested in Jesus, they love that statement in the Bible, God is love. Well, can I say that comes four, chap in, in, four chapters in? This is five verses in, God is light, and in him there is absolutely no darkness. It's an extraordinary statement, a superlative statement for God. Its brevity ought not fool us, because it portrays the excellencies of God, this verse. His purity, his wisdom and holiness. His attributes or character surrender no defect or imperfection. And he is the same yesterday, today and forever, which is of the utmost importance when it comes to us wanting a joyful assurance. And as John makes clear in verses 6 to 10, this message demands that we draw some right conclusions from verse 5 and should bring some right convictions, which leads me to my second IP, an impossible position. On the background of verse 5, John invites us to consider three claims that all begin with the words, if we say. I don't know if you picked that up as you read through the passage this morning. Um, often in a passage you'll see little kind of tips for how the passage breaks up and the repetitiveness of those tips is always a good one. And you'll notice that uh, on three different occasions. There are three claims all beginning with if we say. And the first claim is significant because it ties all three claims to our fellowship with God. The fellowship John wants us to share with him in verse 3, from which flows our complete joy. So they're fairly important claims to pay attention to. The first claim is in verse 6. Did you see it there? If we claim, if we say we have fellowship with him, yet we walk in the darkness, we are lying and are not practicing the truth. 
The second claim, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. The third, if we say we don't have any sin, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Friends, this is not the avenue you want as your personal address. These, if we say, claims. The first claim, as you can see, is obviously hypocrisy. The second is self-deception. And the third challenges the integrity of God himself. These are not straw men arguments. Paul, John is not just throwing out some stuff he made up that he hasn't seen anywhere. No, this is a problem in his church, the church that he writes to. They are real concerns for John, and I want to suggest to you that they are real concerns for us. If the in the first claim, we all know, don't we, the claims to be Christian made by those who live like devils, don't we? Yes? I've heard so many people say, oh, that person goes to church every Sunday and then they go out and they live like a devil all week. They think they can show up to church on Sunday and say confession and it's all okay. They've done their religious claptrap and out they go into the world and live just like nothing's changed. And if that is where you live, then please understand that you can't keep sinning with gay abandon and think it has not, no impact on your fellowship with God. It's an hypocrisy. Secondly, in, in the second claim, we all know the self-deceived person who thinks that they will get into heaven because they're basically good, don't we? I meet people in the streets all the time, I ask you, and my job is to share Jesus Christ with people. I say to people, um, you know, if you died tonight and God said, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? Well, well I'm basically good. Wrong. <coughs> On the button. Wrong. It's not what the Bible says. You don't get into heaven because you're basically good. Get into heaven because you're a saved sinner. That's why you get into heaven. And please, don't make a comparison between others and say, well, actually, compared to the person who's sitting at the end of my row, I'm basically more good than them. <laughs> now, you don't know who I'm talking about at that point, do you? Because the comparison isn't between you and them. The comparison is between you and a God who's light in whom there is no darkness at all. Now get the comparison right. If he is infinitely holy, and I'm assuming you would say he is, wouldn't you? God infinitely good, infinitely holy? Then if you only ever sinned once, once, only once, what would that make you? It would make you infinitely unholy. Because that is the distance between an infinitely holy God and someone who sins. Even if you only sin once, it only takes one sin to make you infinitely unholy compared to the infinite holiness of God. 
So for someone to actually make the claim that they're basically good, and people all over our society are saying that, they're in trouble. Deep trouble. And thirdly, in the third claim, we ought to know, but often miss this, that there are some people who can sit on the pew next to you Sunday after Sunday who think they can redefine what God has said as his truth, declaring that God declaring that what God said back then is not actually true today. And so we actually have God saying for well they're saying that God says evil is good so as to give permission to all kinds of modern sin, which is not modern at all. It has been with us from the very beginning. These claims from the first century, they're incredibly contemporary, aren't they? Don't you think? It's a wonderful thing about the Bible. It's very, very contemporary. Such claims lack integrity. And it's impossible for me to overstate this morning the importance of integrity for joy and assurance when it comes to your Christian life. In my reading, I got a giggle out of this moment of integrity during the week. I kind of thought, how do you illustrate integrity? And I was just reading some stuff and this came up. Mrs. Fisher was recovering from surgery and got a card from her fourth grade class. Dear Mrs. Fisher, your fourth grade class wishes you a speedy recovery by a vote of 15 to 14. <laughs> <laughs> That's got integrity, doesn't it? That's got integrity, but it just lacks sensitivity. And uh, can I suggest to you, we have lots of sermons on integrity, but boy, the church needs some sermons on sensitivity sometimes. But that's for another day. You want to mark that down? Sure. <laughs> but I have to say, not only did I get a giggle over that, in my singing this week, this came to mind. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There, how's it go? There is no shadow of turning in him. Thou changest not, thy compassions they fail not, as thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. That's integrity. We make decisions every day on the basis of integrity, don't we? From the trust we place in our spouse to where we take our car to get it serviced and everything in between. What is integrity? Integrity is wholeness. It's where there is no inconsistency between what you are inwardly and what you are outwardly. And integrity affects every relationship and our capacity to trust one another. Now the building industry, of which my two boys work in, offers us a really helpful piece of advice when it comes to integrity because when the structural integrity of a building is brought into question, the first place to look is at the foundations. 
So let me take you to the foundations because this is what you must see if you are ever to be a Christian with integrity. You're listening? You might want to write this down. Christian religion is the religion of the sinner. You hear that? Christian religion is the religion of the sinner. Structural integrity in the Christian church begins with a recognition of what looks like an impossible position, a problem with the foundations. Let me explain. In verse 5, we see the integrity of God, don't we? God is light, in him there is no darkness at all. Now I want to say that there is no joy in comparison with God at that point, is there? There's no point in trying to match up against God at that point, is there? Think about it. Could anyone who made the claims in verses 6 to 10 say, I am light and in me there is no darkness at all? Could you say that this morning? I am light and in me there is no darkness at all. The answer is obvious, isn't it? And if it isn't obvious, come and talk to me afterwards and I'll do something to make it very clear that there's still darkness in you. Um, Spurgeon poured milk over a particular man's head who claimed to be sinlessly perfect. And then when he reacted, that was at a breakfast table, he just poured the milk all over his head. Uh, up, at that point, the man stood up in fierce anger and expletives and Spurgeon said, it's nice to see that you've joined the ranks of sinners again. <laughs> but to realise... The answer is obvious, but to realise this, to realise the problem and to do nothing about it, I think, must mean that you would have to claim, I am darkness and in me there is no light at all. Wouldn't you? To know that you can't make that claim and to do nothing about it would have to be to say, you are dark and in you there is no light at all, no light even to see the problem. And that's a terrifying human condition, a terrifying darkness, lacking structural integrity. And as foundations go, such a life will be despairing and desperate for repair before it ultimately descends into complete ruin. Three unworthy claims bring me to my third IP. Got it there on your outline? The invaluable provision. Woven within the dark claims of verses 6 and 10. Did you see him? Did you see him in this? I hope you did. You ought to have because integrity always stands out on a black background. There he is. This is the son the father has always rejoiced in with overflowing satisfaction that you see here. To quote another writer, the son of God has always been the landscape of God's excellencies and the panorama of God's perfections. So that from all eternity, God has beheld with indescribable satisfaction the magnificent terrain of his own radiance reflected in his Son. He is not just a fictional character trapped within the verses of this passage, but listen to these verses Listen into these verses. For those who walk in the light and confess their sins. Got it? 
for those who are prepared to come out of the darkness into the light and confess their sins. Verse 7, what does he do? His blood cleanses us from all sin. Verse 9, he forgives us our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. He's an advocate for us in chapter 2, verse 1, and a propitiation in verse 2. We are so familiar with these verses in 1 John. They're in your prayer book. You say them every week after a confession. We're so familiar, but please listen into them. Let there be no audio disturbance this morning in this moment because this is a journey into the God who is light in whom there is no darkness by a people, us, who once were darkness and in whom there was no light. Look at the verses before you and see how magnificent they are. Cleansed. It's extraordinarily good when you're clothed in darkness, don't you think? Before a holy God. Forgiveness is delightfully great. When your false claims to righteousness are exposed, don't you think? Finding an advocate who'll step up for you is such a blessing when you know you're guilty. And propitiation should leave us speechless. When you realise that the anger of God as our judge is turned away from us and our sin and falls on his son. Which makes what we do in the communion service staggering. Now I'm not suggesting because it's staggering you should have it every single week. In fact, I don't think the prayer book ever expected us to have communion every single week. The prayer book actually, when you read the rubric, actually tells us that we need to prepare well in advance of communion. But whether you have it every week, whether you have it every day, doesn't really matter. But what an extraordinary thing. What a speechless moment to eat and drink in remembrance of him who saw the wrath of God turned away from you and focused in on himself. Here is the foundation for a life of joy and assurance. If the Christian religion is the religion of the sinner, remember me saying that? It's because it's the religion of the Saviour. Isn't that right? Has to be, doesn't it? And if you're not a sinner, well, you don't need a Saviour, do you? You just need to be able to say... I'm light, and in me there is no darkness at all. That's all you need to do. Good luck with that. And the fourth IP. Now, really, what we've looked at tonight, uh, today, sorry, um, God, in all His brilliance, us, in our fallen sin. Jesus is our extraordinary saviour. And now we need to think about implications personally of such an invaluable provision of God's grace in Christ for those in the impossible dark place of sin before the immovable pronouncements 
that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. How should these things impact us? God forbid, God forbid that we should traffic in an unlived truth. Hmm. Walking in the light, verse 7, is not a declaration expecting us to be people who are perfect. Verse 8 makes that clear, doesn't it? If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The Bible's not saying you have to be sinlessly perfect. It actually acknowledges that we will sin. But there is for those who know their sin and love their Saviour a born-again reality that transforms our desires such that we long to walk in the light, such that sin becomes more the exception than the rule. That the tongue that once gossiped, gossips less. That the greed that we once held over our bank accounts, our superannuations, becomes less. As we build more and more trust in an almighty God to guide and lead us and to look up. And there's no doubt he'll look after you when you consider that his son was sent into the world as a propitiation for your sin. There is a coming into, a, into the light out of darkness with integrity. I asked you this morning, how's your integrity going? As the religion of the sinner, the saints from the past described the Christian walk as perpetually this, let me give it to you. And I prayed it at the very beginning of this sermon. They saw the Christian walk perpetually as this. A walk of repentance, humiliation, mortification of sin, trust, thanks, love, joy, restful assurance that Jesus is mine, the foretaste of glory divine. And I think there's an order in that, isn't there? I want to finish with a quote. When we hope in God, we glorify God as the fountain of deep and lasting joy. When we pray, we give expression to that God-glorifying hope. And when we obey with joy, we prove that the God of all satisfying hope is real in our lives. Obedience is the irrepressible public relations project of those who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. May God help us to honour him and find our deepest joy and greatest assurance in him. And all God's people said, Amen.